0: A culture is definitely not a mandate it's a movement and unless people feel ownership of how we are evolving our culture there's always going to be a fear uncertainty potentially even resistance to whatever change is happening
1: welcome to the leading transformational change podcast our passion is to help you lead and develop organizations with a remarkably healthy culture that can positively impact all of its stakeholders Every other Thursday, we drop hour-long conversations with world-leading researchers and experts on culture, ethics, change, and leadership. My name is Tobias Sturlsson, and I'm your host and the co-founder of Art Management. Changing culture is not necessarily complex, but it's difficult because it challenges how we work and lead ...and requires a commitment to different and healthier habits. While I believe that culture is the ultimate responsibility of leadership at all levels of an organization... ...HR, ethics and compliance are often tasked with leading the charge. Since many of our listeners are HR and ethics professionals... I wanted to talk to someone who intimately understands how to approach culture from an HR perspective and how to build a strong case for culture with organizational leadership. Aga Bayer is the founder of Culture Brand, a community of cultural leaders, many in the HR field, who are in charge of building thriving cultures in their often fast-scaling organizations. I had the privilege of speaking about culture and crisis and trauma at one of the recent events, and, and the passion and insights of the community members greatly inspired me. For the past 20 years, Aga has been helping companies build thriving cultures at scale, from VC-cording startups to Fortune 500s. She hosts the Culture Lab podcast, where she interviews some of the world's leading experts on culture. In our practical conversation, we discuss culture myths, how to deal with cultural challenges as your organization grows, how to analyze the health of your culture, and why Aga believes that fun, meaning, and belonging are at the heart of a healthy culture. I hope you will find it both practical and helpful. But now, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Aga Bayer. Aga, it is such a privilege to have you on the podcast today.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation, Tobias.
1: Yeah, I've been very excited about it as well. And of course, both you and I, we have the the privilege of working with a lot of different organizations and also having conversations with a lot of experts and researchers and so on on this topic of culture and values and I've been really inspired by the work that you're doing the community that you've been building and I think that there's so much that we can learn from you and I really want to try to get us as, as practical as possible because I know that that is really helpful to our listeners but I wanted to start with just asking you what made you become really so passionate about culture and really starting to focus your work on that?
0: Well, I think like, in many other cases in life when you become passionate about something the origin of this is a need that uh, wasn't really being fulfilled and so you start searching and go down a rabbit hole and in my case there were a couple of things that made me really interested in culture or should I rather say maybe two frustrations that I grappled with? The first one was as a child, when I was growing up, actually I was growing up in Poland behind the Iron Curtain uh, during the times of communism. And for those of your listeners who are too young to even be aware of that of what that was like, uh, living in a country like that meant that you were incredibly insulated and isolated from the rest of the world. And... It was a very, very homogeneous environment. And for some reason, and I really can't put my finger on it, I became incredibly curious about what is behind that iron curtain? What do other cultures look like? And how do people interact with each other and so on and so forth? So I started reading, I started watching movies, and I got obsessed about the fact that not everyone believes in the same things that we believe and not everyone does things in the same way that we do. And that was a part of it, I suppose. The second part of it was that I also realized when I was a child that you can be in a position of power, just like you know, our government was, but you can't really mandate culture. It was really interesting because officially, you know, we were cut off from the Western world and we were supposed to believe in those communistic or social ideals. And yet, if you could be a fly on the wall in one of people's homes, you would hear conversations about um, the Western culture and literature and things that we were not even supposed to be talking to, not to mention criticizing the current regime. And that was a a bit intriguing to me because I was thinking, how is that possible that supposedly you have all this power? You know, one day I woke up to tanks on my street and uh, yet you cannot really control people when they're in their own homes. And then the, the third reason, I suppose, why I got obsessed about culture was my first startup. And I'm going to be super brief and will just say that when I was 20-something years old, a friend of mine and I um, started building a company. It was an ice cream manufacturing company, and we had no idea. What we were doing, and not just as business people, but also as leaders. And I quickly realized that if we want to create a great organization, it's not just about creating a great product and a very tasty ice cream. It's also about creating an environment where people can create, you know, tasty flavors and put their heart and their passion into the products that they're creating. And I realized that it's also easy to find information on that topic. And we're now talking almost 30 years ago. And there wasn't that much about building a thriving culture. And so, yeah, I just went down a rabbit hole. And I did my master's in strategic human resources management. I uh, started reading a lot. Eventually, I decided that I wanted to join a consultancy. And back then, it was high Group. And I wanted to learn more about this topic. And here I am today.
1: So exciting, and I, I thought this this story, of course, of your experience in in Poland, and of course, I'm I'm based in Sweden. My my wife and co-founder of Hearts Management is Ukrainian, so so I have some some understanding of kind of life in that sense behind the the Iron Curtain and the life under communism, and and I think it's so interesting on that topic, the idea that 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 so many times as leaders we might actually think that whatever we have decided should be the culture or should be the strategy or whatever that people are just buying into that and and that they don't necessarily have differing opinions but those opinions are being talked about but it just doesn't happen in forums where we are listening and many times because we're not very good at Listening, it's, it's just something I, I thought about hearing, hearing your story.
0: Exactly right. And that was actually probably one of the biggest lessons I learned about shaping cultures. I realized that culture can only be a movement. It can never be a mandate. You simply cannot mandate that because there is one place uh, where no one has power um, over us. And that place is within our skulls, you know, the way we think and our minds, we are entirely autonomous. And so unless we can convince people or unless we can really listen and understand what people want, it's it's simply impossible to um, shape culture with a mandate. Um, and that came in very handy, of course, later on when I started helping companies uh, shape uh, healthy cultures, because that, that was the first thing I learned as a child. You know, you, you simply cannot tell people, you will think this way because I tell you. And suddenly, simply because you have power, people will. They won't.
1: I think that also touches on something that I think is is quite important. And that's when we talk about culture, we talk about values that values when used the wrong way they can actually be a way to try to control people's opinions which is something or or even freedom of of uh yeah for freedom of opinion and and uh, I, I think a, a researcher here in sweden luis bring i think sense it very well that people actually have the rights to their personal values but they don't necessarily have the right to their behaviors in a in an organizational context, there are certain things where we can, but as you say, no matter how much we mandate something, it's not going to happen unless it actually comes from from within in some shape or form or, or, or as, as a movement, as you say. So, of course, when, when we talk about culture, it is such a, a broad subject. And I think for many, they still wonder so then what is culture and of course there are so many def- different definitions but what is what is your go-to definition of how you define culture
0: i like simplicity to be as as you might already know and so my favorite definition of culture is one that i learned from a big mentor of mine seth godin and seth godin defines culture as people like us do things like that and this very short sentence really contains multitudes so people like like us is all about shared identity and you don't have culture without a shared identity and a shared identity is exactly that piece that you are talking about what are the values that we share because when you have a collection of individuals obviously each individual has their own personal values and as you vary rightfully say they have the right, and I think it's one of the actually fundamental human rights to have our own personal values. And if there are no overlaps in those values, you don't really have a team, you have a collection of individuals with different values. Um, once people's values start overlapping, these overlaps are basically the shared identity part of the definition of culture. So these are the things that we believe in. This is what we stand for as, as a collective. And we identify with that group. So clearly, people have affiliation with many different groups in their lives, and therefore they participate in many different cultures in their lives, starting from our families and the circle of our friends and potentially associations that we are part of, maybe, you know, an athletic team. And work is one of the tribes, hopefully, right, that people identify with. Now, the question is, are companies successful? in creating that collective identity that people will willingly identify with? And of course, the answer, as we know, varies depending on the organization. There are certain organizations where people will really wear, you know, even the logo um, of the company with pride. They, the first thing that they will mention is that they work for this company. It's part of their identity. And I think it's a good thing as long as it doesn't overtake all the other parts of people's identities, because once we invest too much, I think in in any area of our life, it becomes unhealthy. But being able to identify with a group of people that you collaborate with every single day is incredibly important. So the first part of this definition is people like us. Who are people like us? What do we believe in? What do we stand for? And the second part of Seth's definition is we do things like this. And this is where we look at the behavioral aspect of culture, and you know what? How does our culture show up? And these are the things that uh, we often call. um, You know, we do things like this around here. Those unwritten norms that that we expect to see among colleagues, Um, and frankly i think this is the most powerful force that drives behaviors in the workplace those unwritten norms you know you can have an employee handbook you can have the code of ethics you can put a lot of time and energy in creating all these written artifacts but when you look at how people behave you will quickly realize that we are copying machines we look around us and we pay attention to what the people who are important to us, what they do. And if we identify with that tribe, we are going to start copying those behaviors. An example that I like using to really bring this definition of culture to life is, you know, imagine that it's your first day at work, right? And you are sitting in the canteen, it's lunch break, and you feel a little bit awkward, you still don't know a lot of people, but you join the table and you listen to a conversation that is happening at the table, and then suddenly, the fire alarm goes off. Now the question is, what do you do? Do you follow the rules? And we all know what the rules are, right? Without panicking, you should stand up and head immediately to exit. But the reality is, what people will do is they will look around at what others are doing. And if others are stoically continuing the lunch, no one will stand, out, stand up and, and leave uh, the canteen. Um, And that happens in every aspect of an organizational life. We look around, we copy what our colleagues do, especially if we work with them closely, especially if we respect them and we value them as individuals. So that's my favorite definition of culture. Very simple and to the point.
1: Thank you, Aga. That's really, really helpful. And I think using your your last example there i mean there's there's an experiment done on that or, or kind of quite similar to what you were we're talking about and and i think it's it's a powerful image of of group dynamics and it's i think it also adds a bit to the complexity around this subject because there's of course the positive aspect of that that people do as they see the group do. But there's also another aspect of how we can very easily fall into blindness and how we then need to ensure that we actually can act in, I mean, raise concerns or or say something when we see that that things are, that there is a fire going on or or something that we just don't kind of look around and and see what everyone else is doing. And I I think that's also a, a part of when we think about building cultural health and building a thriving culture. And I think you alluded to that before as well, that in one sense, we want that strength in that sense that strength in, in this shared identity. But in another sense, we also want people who have the capacity to think for themselves and where we have an environment that actually encourages people to think for themselves. Do you, Do you have any, any, any perspectives on that? uh kind of that that balance in in, in a way
0: Absolutely. And let me start with um, highlighting one of the points that you have made about blindness. I actually refer to it as cultural blindness. And there is this beautiful story that illustrates the nature of culture in organizations that was first shared, I believe, in uh, a speech by David Foster Wallace around 2006, I believe. And what he said in that speech was he, sh- he shared a story about two fish swimming in the ocean, Right, you, you probably know the story, but for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to share it. So there are these two young fish swimming in the sea, and you know, they have a jolly good time. It's a nice day, and um, they, they enjoy themselves. And suddenly, there is an older fish swimming in the opposite direction. And the older fish says, Hello, boys, how is the water? And the two young fish say, Yeah, great, thank you, thank you. But then one turns to the other and goes, What the hell is water? and that's the thing with culture right when we are deeply immersed in something we are we become habituated to it to an extent that it becomes invisible so it's still driving our behaviors but we stop seeing it so to your point around do we need to encourage um, people actually bringing the invisible to the surface and making the invisible visible and challenging it. Absolutely. Because while of so far sometimes it's good to have these mental shortcuts and not think about the water too much. Um, and it's equally true in our personal lives as it is at work. Um, you don't want to think, how do I tie my shoelaces every single day, right? You prefer to, and we want it to, to work automatically. But sometimes in really important aspects, actually having that reflection, is this really The best way we can do this or is this really the best way of collaborating or what could be a better way of doing that this is incredibly incredibly valuable and so for me giving people this ability to see culture like giving them almost like those culture goggles through which they can start seeing the water is incredibly important and i think genuinely it's the duty of care of organizations to do that for people. Because ultimately, when you think about why we create those businesses, there are two key reasons um, in a good case scenario. The first reason is, of course, we want to succeed as a business. And so we've created this business because we want to be profitable, we want to have a positive impact on the world, we have a certain vision, and we want to bring this vision to life. And hopefully, The second reason is we want to create a great environment for people and we actually want our employees to thrive. And if you are genuinely serious about both, you will need to give people the ability to wear culture goggles from time to time, right? And constantly challenge the culture within the organization. Why? Because I think no one would argue we live in times of constant accelerating change. And because our environment is changing all the time, Our culture needs to evolve as well, because unfortunately, culture is not one and done ever. You cannot say, oh, now we have a healthy culture. That's great. We can forget about it and move to project number two. We need, it's a daily practice, right? And as our environment changes, culture needs to change as well. It's contextual. You know, there is no one size fits all when it comes to organizational culture. And so you need to be on top of it all the time. You need to wear those culture goggles all the time.
1: I really want to dig into that. And in in my work, I found that I think one of the most dangerous myths is the idea or the assumption, I would say, that organizations take for granted, that we are a good organization with a healthy culture and great values. And and I I just very recently, just a few days ago, had yet another example of a company uh, that uh, they they are they have won kind of the the best workplace in in their city. Their CEO has been awarded as the best leader, and suddenly things came crumbling down. And and clearly because of blindness and and leadership issues. And I've seen that time and time again. And I'm I'm starting to think that that these awards, these culture awards or employee branding awards, are are actually in, in one way. I shouldn't say this, but toxic in a way because they almost like lead towards us just leaning back and thinking we've made it, and 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 when we when we think about this and and then we start using our values instead of l- letting them help us have hard conversations about what we should be accepting, what we should be rewarding, what we should be prioritizing, and inviting criticism and inviting, soliciting hard feedback. We use them as a shield to protect against criticism. And, and, and I, I think when we talk about this, like, uh, seeing the water, getting those goggles to see the water. So in a practical way, how, how do you help leaders and HR professionals and organizations do that? Because I think that's one of the, the, the most difficult things to actually see the water.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the first thing that you really need to ask yourself when you think of how do we see the water is why do we even want to see it, right? What are the main objectives in that? What What are we looking to learn from seeing the water? Because if the only thing that we want to see is validation of what we already believe Maybe just forget about it. So for me, the whole process starts with a genuine intention to learn something that we didn't know and to assume, and it's a pretty safe assumption, that there are areas in our culture that we could and should improve. And probably, especially if we're a part of the senior leadership team, we have major blind spots. And our perception of our culture and this is actually, there's evidence that supports that, that senior leadership teams always, without exception, have a better perception of the company culture than the employees. Um, why is this happening? Very often because of those blind spots, but also life for senior leaders in organizations very often is pretty sweet. You know, you have a lot of autonomy, right? You have a lot of power. You can do whatever you wish. You are actually asking people to execute your strategy that you have created. It's pretty cool, right? But your people don't have the same experience very often. So there is going to be a gap. And so for me, the first thing to really think about is do we genuinely want to have a look at these gaps? And is there a readiness for change? And I think Tobias, one of the reasons why you get called into these organizations in crisis is that they are in crisis. And crisis um, has this quality of ringing the alarm bell and saying, hey, there's something you need to pay attention to. It's very rarely that clients will reach out to us proactively and say, do you know what? We are really here to build an amazing company. We know that culture is important. So we actually want to start really early before we face any issues. Um, I think Culture Brained, my company, is quite lucky because we do a lot of uh, post m a integration work. And that's a moment in time where organizations are perhaps more sensitized to the need to work on their culture irrespective of whether there are major issues or not simply because they're bringing a number of entities together and it seems like it's a good time to you know to press the reset button on culture but generally speaking there needs to be a crisis typically for organizations unfortunately to to call for help so number one is there readiness for change are we really ready to look in the mirror. Number two, what do we want to learn about our culture? And I generally feel like there are a couple of reasons, major reasons that I've mentioned already that organizations want to learn more about their culture. One is they believe that culture genuinely can be significant enabler of their business success. And so they want to see how is it helping and how is it hindering our ability to execute on our strategy? And the second reason is we genuinely commit to creating an environment where people can do their best work and have a fulfilling experience at work. And so we want to create an environment where people can thrive. And if you approach culture with these two lenses, um, there are two different approaches that you need to take, in my opinion. When it comes to creating a thriving environment, you can actually... Um, find a good foundation a good model um, that addresses human needs and generally speaking our needs as humans uh, humans at work haven't changed since the paleolithic times basically hunters and gatherers when they were roaming the savannah and hunting and gathering it was work was part of their life they had a common goal uh, towards which they were They were working together and work was an integral part of their lives and a source of fun, meaning and belonging. And, you know, when you think about modern human beings, these needs haven't really changed. Our brains haven't evolved that much since those times because in evolutionary terms, it's just a blink of an eye. And so we still need to have fun we still need to have the sense of meaning in our life, and we still need to have a sense of belonging. And so when we work with client organizations, we help them assess their cultures against these three pillars of thriving cultures. And this is something that we have identified through our original research. We asked now more than 3,000 people to share an experience when they felt like they were doing the best work of their careers. And we had two findings. One was when you ask people that question, their faces just light up instantaneously. They smile and you can see the sparkle in their eyes. And for me personally, being one of the interviewers, that was an incredibly powerful experience. And it literally makes my hair still stand up, you know, and gives me goosebumps because it's just a testament to the power of work experience for people. We crave those moments of greatness where we can really uh, feel like we're doing something meaningful and having great results. It's such an incredibly important part of our lives. And unfortunately, people are being robbed of that in unhealthy work cultures, and that's a crime and should be punishable. So that was my first finding, you know, It's, it's really a duty of care that organizations have to give people that sense of uh, of a job well done. And the second finding was that there were some common themes. So when people talked about a time where they did their best work, there were three elements present across all of these interviews. The first one was people genuinely enjoyed their work. So they enjoyed what they were doing. There wasn't a set of this, ugh, I hate doing it, you know, I can't. And yet somehow I perform at the highest possible level. So there was a sense of enjoyment of work itself, not sort of activities that are attached to work, like table tennis and stuff like that, but work itself. The second element that was always present was people felt like what they are doing is actually benefiting someone and that someone is actually quite important for them. And interestingly, you know, it doesn't necessarily always have to be this big purpose, but people want to know my colleague, maybe you know Tobias, my favorite colleague in my office, I know that if I deliver the support to him on time, he will be able to move on with his part of the project. and because he's a person I like and respect, I want to do this for him. and I know that my work has important impact on him. And so that gives me meaning, and that can be enough. It doesn't have to be that huge purpose, right? Obviously, if there is a wider, bigger organizational purpose and people know that they are making a dent in the world and making this um, world a better place, clearly it gives people an even stronger sense of meaning. Another thing that people tell us is that work gives them a sense of meaning when they can fulfill their personal goals and aspirations, and organizations often forget about that. You know, people work not simply to maximize shareholder value. They work because they want to feed their families, they work because they want to have certain social status, they work because they want to be able to afford a better house. They work because they want to grow and learn and develop. Each person has their personal needs. And when these needs are being met and these goals are being met, people get a sense of meaning that comes from work, not directly perhaps, but indirectly. And that's important too. So the sense of meaning was the third very important element. And finally, the third one is the sense of belonging, which is basically about a sense of supportive community at work. And if I were to boil it down to its essence, it's basically the answer to the question, do I have people here at work that have my back? Do I have people who have my back? This is incredibly powerful. And We've identified a few levels, of course, to each of these pillars, but what it boils down to is, is there someone in this team, in this group, that has my back, that sees me, that values me as an individual, that um, I can feel safe with and I can express my opinion freely and openly, Clearly, it helps also if people can say, do you know what? I actually identify with this organization. I align with its values and with its vision, its purpose. That helps. So that's part of the sense of belonging as well. So this was a very long-winded way of saying, if you want to evaluate your environment against are you creating the conditions for your people to do the best work of their careers, the way we support our clients is we help them map their culture and assess their culture against these three pillars. And every organization can do that. However, I am not a big proponent of just staying there because I think what you need to know as an organization is also how do we live our values? Assuming that your values... Meet the right criteria because, you know, if you just copied them from Netflix, this is not going to work. But if you identified your values by looking at who we are at our core, so what is genuinely and authentically us at our best, and perhaps some aspirational elements there as well, but also, so it has to be idiosyncratic for us as an organization, but also do these values enable our business, right? Our strategy. And if you know that you have the right values, another thing that we believe is extremely important to evaluate is the extent to which an organization lives its values. And we often translate these values uh, for the organizations that we work with into very specific granular behaviors. Because if you say teamwork, it can mean a million different things. And probably each person is going to attach their own meaning to that. So that's not enough. You need to be speaking about specific behaviors. And once you have that snapshot, you have something to work with and you can identify what are the gaps? You know, what do we need to work on?
1: When I think about this and when I think about a a culture that, a a healthy culture, I'm thinking that it should enable us to deliver on our mission. It should create a workplace where employees thrive. And it should ensure that we have a positive impact on our stakeholders and also uh, that we're able to kind of face uncertainty and with resilience. But what I think sometimes might be important is to kind of decouple the aspect of delivering on our strategy and, and mission, because many times that is very much financially oriented in a lot of companies and really thinking about what is the impact that we're having in a broader sense because we can be super great at delivering on our strategy and still have a terrible impact on on, on the world so so but but, but that's super helpful like, and and you work a lot with scale ups and i think that is such an kind of interesting stage in an organization's life and and uh, we've also done a lot of work as you mentioned with for example with companies that have just gone through mergers and acquisitions and grown in that way, or it might be uh, public organizations that have just gotten a new mission or suddenly, I mean, let's say, for example, you you would say, like, say, the immigration department might suddenly just grow rapidly because you have an influx of immigrants or whatever. So you have these situations where an organization takes different steps, where suddenly the identity of the organization changes in, spe- in in certain ways, for example. And if we would look at kind of the, the 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 steps from kind of a small to maybe more of a medium-large organization, let's say from, from 30 to 70, 50 to 100 or 100 to 300, I think there are certain steps where suddenly you realize that, okay, we can't communicate in the same way that we've done before, because before everyone knew everything. And now we realize everyone can't know everything anymore or uh everyone could be involved in all the decisions and now they can't be involved in all the decisions anymore and and i think about those steps and of course there's a certain sense of uh, familiarity in, in that type of culture where we know everything we're involved in everything and i think when you go towards that change and that growth there is a sense of loss there's a sense that you as an employee you're losing something that was valuable to you and and now suddenly you're thrust out into uncertainty and i think a lot of organizations face pain at those steps and and i think too many times we're not intentional enough about how are we taking those steps what are they doing with our culture what are they doing what are our people feeling like they lose? Because back to your point, as you said in the beginning, that senior leaders as a senior leader, whether we were 50 or uh, 300, you're still in control. You still have all the information. You still are in charge of the strategic st- decisions. So we don't always appreciate the loss that people further down or whatever, however you see the hierarchy, what they're losing. So. What what are your learnings and what would you say to leaders who are kind of navigating these different changes within their organization to think about their culture in a more intentional way?
0: I am a big believer in engaging the entire organization in this conversation, as I've mentioned before a culture is definitely not a mandate, it's a movement. And unless people feel ownership of how we are evolving our culture, there's always going to be a fear, uncertainty, potentially even resistance to whatever change is happening. And so the first thing that we do is we think, how can you engage your organization in a conversation about how things are changing and put them in the driver's seat of those changes? And a process that we use with organizations we support is first, let's focus on our vision, like who and what do we want to become in the future? What impact do we want to have in the world? Um, How do we want to be perceived by our stakeholders? Um, What dent will we make in the world? And then we like to have a conversation with the entire organization or representatives of the organization Um, who we refer to as informal influencers about what do we need to say goodbye to because it's actually going to hold us back from bringing this vision to life. And there are certain aspects of our current culture or our past culture that we genuinely love and they made us successful up until this point. And we need to... um, acknowledge them and we need to express our gratitude but then we need to say goodbye and move forward from that because we know that that's simply not serving us any longer so it's an important conversation and i think very often leaders underestimate their organization's intelligence and people's ability to actually have this astute awareness that for example you know that intimacy that we had and everyone being involved in every single project and having a say in every decision this is not sustainable beyond a certain number of people, right? So people realize that. And very often they will say themselves, you know, maybe we need to focus more on our areas of expertise and we still need, of course, those town halls where, you know, we get informed about the important changes, decisions, and get the context, but it cannot be what it used to be. So the first conversation is the conversation about what we need to stop doing because it no longer serves us. The second conversation is what is still valid? Like what made us great and what are the elements of our culture that are so integral to our success in the past, in the present and in the future that we need to maintain them, nourish them and make sure that they don't dissipate or get diluted in the process of scaling. Because this is very often what happens. Imagine an organization of 30 people becoming 250 or even 300 in a year. And that's a very, very common situation. Suddenly, the amount of people who have no idea what your culture is, they are completely not familiar with who you are at your best, are the majority, right? And they have almost nothing in common unless you create that common ground. So this is a very dangerous space to be in. And so in order to bring those newcomers into the picture, it's important to talk about the aspects of our culture that worked for us in the past, work for us in the present, and will work for us in the future, and we commit to maintaining them. And then finally, of course, there is, you know, that blank page. The thing that we are not doing now, we didn't do in the past, the the skill, the way of collaborating, the way of winning, that we need to develop because the future requires that. And that's the third conversation that organizations need to have. What is it that we need to develop? It's not our strength. It's not the strength of our culture, it's missing. And we need to work together to develop it. And how can we, by the way, engage the newcomers who are probably bringing some of that good stuff to help us grow. And that's a beautiful way to engage the newcomers and tell them, at ideally quite early stage of their, um, their um, existence within the system, that they have valuable contributions to make to this organization, and they're a valuable addition, and you want to learn from them.
1: That's, that's super, super helpful, Aga, and, and I, I think we've, we both uh, had conversations with Kevin Oakes, uh, the, the author of the book, uh, Cultural Renovation, I, and I, I really love that that concept of of, like you say we need to really be thinking about what are the the valuable things within our culture that we should not let go of and at the same time what do we need to change and what do we need in the future and i i found that many times the things and and which which makes it sometimes a bit hard it is that sometimes the assumptions about what made us great in the past are quite connected with things that have actually become problems as well and i think that's why we need a lot of discernment in turn of in in terms of discerning what is what and also understand that these are can be quite quite connected that there can be a kind of plus and a minus side to 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 many of the cultural traits that we have as an organization so when when we think about developing culture and i i want now to you to to kind of give me your perspective and push back on on my perspective here or just or add to it or or whatever but i think that the way that we approach culture change culture renovation or whatever you want to call it is flawed in so many ways and i think the research bear or the statistics bear that out that so few initiatives actually uh, succeed. And and to me, one of the critical issues here is that culture is seen. So, so when we do feel the pain, as you said, that's normally doesn't necessarily have to be a crisis, but some kind of pain that leads us to say, okay, we need to do something about our culture. We kind of relegate it to HR. I do believe HR needs to play a critical role. I, I work a lot, educate a lot of HR leaders, but we relegate it to HR, and then we see it as this project. And and what I find time and time again, is that many times when you really dig into this, and you analyze and assess the culture, realize that there are leadership habits, there are leadership, for example, you have leaders who are unwilling to accept that they made a mistake. You have leaders, which which is for me one of the most fundamental habits, which is the habit of getting humble, that we're able to accept mistakes, that we're and so on. But but that actually the things that we see they are connected to how we lead within the organization. And in my perspective, we put so much effort into short-term projects and but and we don't see the results because we don't get to the long-term habits and and where i think many times that it's much more impactful to then make smaller changes to things we do regularly than putting so much hope into kind of all only these occasional efforts so so what's what's your perspective on that and what are some things that you think are so important for leaders to kind of grasp to take ownership of their role within the culture and to get healthier habits in place. And if you disagree with with my whole uh, assertion here, you're just free to, to to do that as well.
0: I don't disagree. I think we express similar views in slightly different ways. I want to start answering your question by perhaps sharing in my mind what are the cardinal sense of... Um, approaching culture in organizations. And this is where we might differ a little bit, because in my perception, one of the cardinal sins is actually decoupling cultures from strategy. Um, I think there is this perception that culture is a soft, gooey thing, and it's hard really to know whether it's going to have an impact on anything, on business results, on how um, we, um, you know, the impact that we create in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So, we treat it as something separate.
1: I, I, I should just say, I agree 100% with you. So yeah. I don't disagree, yes.
0: Yeah, right, and I'm sure that you see this as well, that culture and strategy are a part of the same thing. And actually, you know, culture should be part of your strategy, obviously, because it's an enabler, it's an enabler of your strategy. So decoupling it, and, and as you say, relegating it to HR is one of the biggest mistakes that organizations make. The second cardinal mistake that I see is um, basically mandating culture. So someone, you know, there's a senior leadership team that goes on a fancy retreat. They come up with uh, a few cool sounding words and that's supposed to be culture. And people are being told from now on, this is how we're going to do things around here. And the third thing that you have just addressed that I think is a huge mistake is what I call projectifying culture, which is not a word, obviously, it's a word that I've made up. And projectifying culture is exactly what you described, where basically you have a red flag, something's happening around culture. So you say, okay, so we need a a project team that's going to work on that. And we create a project with clear deliverables and, of course, a timeline. And the nature of timelines is that at some point there is an end point. And that's a very wrong assumption because, as I've mentioned earlier in our conversation, culture is a daily practice. And I know that you agree with this as well. I know your work around habits. It's not one and done. It's never one and done. And so back to your question now in this context of what can leaders do or what we would advise leaders to do to take culture beyond that project-based approach, basically, um, or something that needs to get fixed and then we forget about it. Um, I think it's um, it's really important to um, to demonstrate that culture has direct impact on what leaders truly value. And once this perception is getting established, it's much easier for leaders to engage actively in practicing culture, because I think that's probably the right word, right? What you practice, it's a practice, it's a daily practice. So once you have that understanding how this impacts what is really, truly, deeply important to you, it's easier to do it. It's equally true in our lives, it's true at work as well. How can we demonstrate that? Certainly building a business case, showing how, for example, teams that have healthier cultures um, perform better. And there's plenty of evidence on that, by the way. If you don't have evidence on that in your organization, there's plenty of evidence from lots of academics who've um, uh, researched companies. One of the most famous ones is Cotter and Heskett research, where they followed organizations that invested in their cultures and not, and the differences between financial results, for example, are huge, not to mention differences in their ability to make a positive impact on the world and engage their people and so on and so forth. So there is a business case. Leaders need to understand that. It's not that soft, gooey thing. It's actually a very powerful tool that they have in their toolbox to achieve what they want to achieve. Um, So that's number one. Number two, I think genuinely there are a lot of leaders out there with good intentions and leaders who would like to be able to get better, but they don't know how and they don't know where. And so this is where I think a great opportunity lies for culture leaders, whether they are internal culture leaders or external culture leaders, to genuinely support these people in making the changes that will create a better environment. Um, and that can be training that can be coaching that can be, um, a, an app that gives leaders some ideas. You know, if you have, for example, psychological safety issues, these are the things that you can do. Um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the, um, Uh, ideas uh, for my next business that I have is creating a tool that enables you to take a snapshot of your culture in your team, identify the gaps, and then give you very practical tips around what you can do specifically today in order to address these gaps. And once you have that, I think genuinely for the majority of leaders they would execute those things they would try and do them especially if they have a supportive community that can help them and this is where um, the value of um, a peer-to-peer community comes in so final element in supporting leaders leaders need to learn to be vulnerable in public And being vulnerable in public, the first step, I think, that is relatively comfortable for leaders is to be vulnerable uh, with their peers. And so they need spaces where they can talk about stuff that is difficult, you know. Maybe it's going to be a brain trust or a mastermind group or an action learning set. But you need a space where you can say, you know what, I have this team member it's, it seems like I have a bad case of a brilliant jerk. I need this person, but they are really destroying the morale in my team. I have no freaking idea what to do. What do you guys think? Like, where are these spaces for leaders is what I'm asking. There are not so many. And my question is why, why aren't we building those spaces where people with genuinely good intentions can get some support around those things?
1: Last point, Anga, and, and thank you for for everything you shared there and I, I think I agree so, so much uh, with it. And I I think this last point is so incredibly, incredibly important. And I think we learn more and more in our work that one of the biggest shifts is actually creating those spaces for accountability, for support for like you say, a place to be vulnerable, a place to learn, a place to share a place to reflect. And most organisations miss those spaces. And, and Doing that would create such incredible change, and and I i we're running out of time, and and there's just one more question that I wanted to to ask you before I, I let you give us some ways to connect with you, and and that is you work a lot with HR leaders, and 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 I do too, and 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 I, and I know that many people listening to this podcast are HR leaders or ethics and compliance leaders, and of course both stand in. A support function. I know that many times they they are at head with it with each other. <laughs> but, but anyways. Uh, but when when you speak, if you would speak to to ethics and compliance or HR leaders as support functions, and and I think for many of them, the challenge is so many times getting their leaders to really take up their role in 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 taking responsibility for the culture of the organization, whether it's focus on ethical culture or, or another aspect of culture. So very, very shortly, what is your encouragement and advice to them?
0: My encouragement is you probably hold the most important role in your organization. Because you know if you can take care of your people, your people will take care of your mission and your people will take care of your customers and they will take care of your results. So whether it is um, officially acknowledged by your organization or not, you really hold an incredibly important role. My advice to you would be, I think for the majority of HR leaders or ethics leaders, Um, these are people who are great at people and that's why they've picked that role. And strength sometimes turns into a weakness because I think what's missing sometimes, not in all cases, is really solid understanding of the business side of things. And for me, HR and the so-called supportive functions, um, that support the business, they need to be able to demonstrate that they actually understand the business and understand the business's needs. And this is what I would focus on because I have zero doubt that you are incredibly uh, empathetic, incredibly skilled in the people areas. But if you cannot speak of a speak the language of the business, it is going to be very, very difficult to be invited to that um, table that everyone talks about um, and even pull your own chair because people will not perceive you as someone who has valuable contributions to make. Again, there is this perception, it's soft and gooey, so you need to remember that and you need to help leaders see how the stuff that you are doing is going to help them be successful.
1: Super, super helpful, and I just want to acknowledge with our eight ethics and compliance leaders that it's probably many of you are lawyers, but but I think the same yeah. <laughs> same point in many ways yeah. relate to you. So, Aga, this has has really been a, a joy and a privilege, and and finally, I just wanted to ask you, how can people connect with you and follow your work?
0: I think the best place to connect is LinkedIn. So you can follow me on LinkedIn or connect on LinkedIn. Agabayer. I accept uh, most, if not all of the invitations. So please reach out. The best place to learn about my work and my company's work is to go to my website, which is agabayer.com, A-G-A-B-A-J-E-R.com. And you can learn about our community for culture leaders there you can check out our podcast the culture lab you can check out our blog and our methodology so this is probably two of the best places to go to
1: and and i should just say that i've been been uh, a part of one of the sessions yeah. in your culture brand community and and uh, just fantastic to see such uh, engaged community and and i truly uh see that there's so much important learning going on there so so really check that out and of course Aga's brilliant podcast as well so Aga thank you so much for taking the time
0: Thank you Tobias thank you for doing this work first of all because we need individuals like you we need more people like us who are passionate about this topic and create genuine change out there in the world. And obviously, thank you for this conversation, the really thought-provoking questions, and um, I enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leading leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.